0: One of the distinctive marks of what it means to be a Christian is that you call God Father. That's what I want us to explore together. That's what I want us to think about this afternoon. What does it mean to call God Father, and why do we do that? And we're going to read together again, and this will be familiar with you by by now, I hope. But we're going to read again the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. We're going to start in Matthew chapter six, verse nine. And here's why we call God Father. Jesus said, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts. As we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I don't know about you, but look, prayer is hard, right? It's hard to pray. If you've ever tried praying, you'll have discovered it's actually quite a difficult thing to do. Some of you may never have had a go. You may not really be aware what prayer is. Well, hopefully this will help you to understand that. But some of us will say, yeah, I'm a Christian and I know I'm supposed to pray and I try to pray, but when I try to pray, either I'm too busy and I can't make time for it, or when I do have time for it, I just get so distracted by thoughts of essays and work and all the things I've got to do that I just can't concentrate on it. Is that your experience? That's certainly most people's experience of trying to pray. But I want to suggest this afternoon that perhaps the biggest barrier to us praying is not a lack of time, because let's face it, we've got time. We find time for other things. And it's not that we get distracted and get confused. One of the reasons that we really struggle to pray is because we don't really understand who God is. It is a problem, not with our technique, but with our theology. If we could see who God really is, and if we could understand what it is to call him father and to be his child, it would change our praying. And so what we're going to do this afternoon is not talk about some magic words that we could pray, or some techniques, or some rituals that we can go through. We're going to talk not about how to pray, but about who we pray to. Because as we learn to pray to our Father, then we'll learn to pray. And I just find it fascinating when Jesus says, this is how you should pray. He says, call him our Father. Our Father. For a start, that means Jesus assumes we're going to pray with other people. Or at least prayer, aware of other people. Because he doesn't say, my Father. He says, our Father. Which is weird, because in the bit just before, he says, go into your room on your own, where no one else sees you, and pray on your own, our Father. And those two things in Jesus' head go together. Jesus is saying, yeah, prayer is something that you do individually, something you do in private. But it's something that you do with an awareness that you're part of something bigger. You pray, our Father. So here's a challenge, here's a tip, right, as we go through, we'll try and be practical. In your praying this week, whether you pray for half an hour or for two minutes, in your praying, try and pray plurally, not singularly. Try it. Not all the time, I'm not saying it's a rule you have to follow, but it will help you to have an awareness that you're part of something else. Our Father. So we pray R, ah, but we pray Father. Now, that to me is fascinating, that Jesus doesn't say, when you pray, pray, O King. Because God is King, right? Let's be clear on that. God is the King of the universe. And Jesus could have said, address him as King. But he doesn't. He says, address him as Father. Or Jesus could have said, address him as the sovereign ruler, creator, and majestic Lord of all. Or he could have said, address him as great judge. All those things are true of God. That is who he is. But Jesus says, you need to learn to pray our Father. Our Father in heaven. And that means we need to understand what Jesus means by Father. Now look, here's here's an important principle. When you read the Bible, Bible words have Bible meanings. One of our big problems is that you read the Bible, you find a word that you know, which is quite a relief because some of the words are quite difficult. You find an easy word and you go, oh, excellent, it's an easy word. Father, I know what one of those is. At least I've got some idea of what that is. I don't want to burst your bubble, but don't do that. Because the trouble is what we will do is we will read our understanding of Father and map it onto what God is and then say, so that must be what God is like. You can see that's going to be a problem, right? I mean, that would be like me having a kick around in the park with my boys, playing football, and uh, and us saying, well, this is the definition of football, right? This is what football is. This is how it works. This is my experience of football. This must be what it is. Then I turn on the telly and I watch them playing football and I say, well, that's not right. They're doing that wrong. And I phone up, uh, you know, uh, who said Southampton? That was extremely rude. I support Southampton, who next year will still be a Premier League team. (laughs) Just. Um, But it would be like me phoning up Ralph Hassenhutel, who is the manager of Southampton. His name literally means rabbit hutch. (laughs) It would be like me phoning him and saying, listen, Ralph, you're doing it all wrong. I know football because we do it here and you need to do it like this. You see, that's crazy, right? That is to define, so when I play football in the park, I'm looking at that, trying to learn from them how I play football and trying to replicate what they do, not getting them to replicate what I do. Does that even vaguely help? So here is God in heaven, and God is Father. And if we say, oh, well, we know what Father's is because we, we do that, so let's take that and try and map that onto God and make God into what we think, it, that's all wrong. And you can see that must be wrong because we've got such different experiences of Father's. And for some of us in this room, we've had a really hard experience of a father. Some of us have have had absent fathers. Some of us have had great fathers, but we've got really different experiences. So how are we going to use our experience to work out what God is like? And added to that, a hundred years ago, if you'd used the term father, it would have conjured up a completely different image to what father means today. And so it seems fairly clear that in order to understand this, we really do need to let the Bible define what God means by Father. And if we can... Let me show you where we're heading, just to encourage you that this is worth listening to. All right? This is what I'm praying and hoping um, as we learn to understand what it means that God is Father. This is how I hope it will transform our prayer life. Three ways. I can tell you what they are now, so you can see it as we go through, and then we'll apply it at the end. Here are the three ways. I hope it will help us to discover a greater delight in prayer. I hope it will help us to learn to honor God more in prayer, that we will treat him with greater respect and honor than we have before. And I hope it will give us an increased boldness. That as we pray, we would pray with boldness this week because he's Father. That's where we're heading. So let's get into this father thing and what what, what does it all mean? Well, let me say, when Jesus um, uses this term father, he is not plucking something out of the air and going, "Um, oh, I know. Let's call God father. That would be nice. No, what Jesus is doing is he is taking a theme that has started right way back in the Bible and is tracing that thing through and saying you need to understand how this idea of father is fulfilled as i tell you this prayer in matthew's gospel this idea of the old testament being fulfilled is a huge idea This happened to fulfill. This was to fulfill. This was to fulfill. Jesus has come to fulfill. So the whole Old Testament story, it's one story. Jesus turns up and he fulfills the whole thing. It's like through the Old Testament, there's all these different melodies, different tunes that interweave with one another. And sometimes you can't quite work out how it works, but you can see these different themes and they're all coming together and the crescendo builds and builds and builds until you get to Jesus. And Jesus is the great fulfillment. And one of those themes is the theme of Father. God as Father. I read some stuff this week that said, well, in the Old Testament, you know, uh, God wasn't really a father, he was more king. And then when Jesus comes, he introduces this idea of Father. I think that's nonsense. This theme of God being Father is all over the place. But we've got to see how. So just give me a few minutes to explain this theme and how it all comes together. I hope this will be vaguely exciting. I hope this will help you to see when Jesus says, Our Father in heaven, it is like this massive crescendo when suddenly you go, Wow. For his first hearers, they'd have been blown away by him saying this. We call him what? You're telling us to call God Father. Are you sure? Yes, Jesus says. So where do we find this theme of father in the Old Testament? Well, it's pretty trendy today and quite common today to talk of God being the father of all people. You know, God is father of everyone. He made everyone, so he's the father of everyone. The Bible hardly ever uses father like that. There is perhaps one place in Acts 17 when... Paul talks about God being, uh, all of us being God's offspring. That's probably the only place where you get close to God being the father of everyone. Actually, in the Bible, when you read of God being the father, he is the father of one nation in the Old Testament. He's the father of Israel. And he takes this one nation, which is pretty small and pretty unimpressive. And he builds this one nation and he says, you are my son. And when Egypt take Israel as slaves, God says, they're my son. That's my firstborn son you've got there. That is father language. And as they groan in slavery... God hears them because he's a father. Because that's what fathers do. They have compassion and concern when their child is in trouble. I had a phone call yesterday from my eldest son. I've I've asked him for permission to tell this story. I had a phone call yesterday. I was out. He was at home. He said, Dad, you need to come home. Why? He said, because it's very windy. I was like, mate, you're 14 years old. I mean, it is a bit blowy, but really? He said, a tree has fallen down and is in our flat. (laughs) I was like, okay, tell me more. Anyway, I didn't go, I'll sort it out. Who cares? I don't care. I didn't ignore it. As a father, I was concerned for the cry of help from my child. I got home, and it was quite a small tree. And it hadn't come into the flat, but it was resting against the window of the flat. So it was, it was a big deal. It was a traumatic experience. But I rushed home to rescue my child. If he'd been pinned under a massive great oak tree, then I would have been concerned. I'd have rushed to his aid. That's what fathers do. Fathers are concerned when they hear their child cry out and they're in trouble. And here is Israel, God's firstborn son, crying out to God, groaning in their slavery. And it says in Exodus chapter 2 that God saw them and heard their groaning and was concerned about them, he remembered his covenant. That's what a father's like. You want to know what a father, according to the Bible, is? A father is someone who is concerned and moved with compassion when their child is in trouble. Israel. And God acts. He acts to rescue his son out of slavery, he brings them out. And I'd love you to turn to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, because you'll just see that this language is used. Hosea 11, verse 1. This is page 908. Okay, 908, Hosea 11, verse 1. Here's what God says. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. You see it? That's what we've been saying. God talks about Israel, the nation of Israel, as his son. So if you ask the question, who is the son of God in the Old Testament? You could rightly argue Israel. Israel, God's chosen, precious son. And he loves his child. He loves his son, Israel. He instructs them. He gives them good commands. There's a whole book of the Bible called Proverbs. That's all a father speaking to their child, giving them good commands. And he protects them. He defeats their enemies. This is what, according to the Bible, a father does. Loves with compassion, instructs and protects them from their enemies. This is what God did for the nation of Israel. God is concerned, so he defeats the enemy and he brings them out. A few years ago, there was a boxing um, fight. And um, the two guys were fighting and one of them was losing quite badly. And at one point, the mother of the one who was losing leapt into the ring, took off her shoe, and started attacking the other guy. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? What a beautiful picture of motherly love. That's what a parent does. That's what a father does, right? They protect. They're moved to protect. That's what God does for Israel. He loves them, he hears them, he instructs them, and he protects them. This is God and Israel. What a beautiful relationship. But Israel never treated God like a father. In fact, in the book of Malachi, God says, If a son honors his father, where is the respect given to me? Where is the honor given to me? Israel did not love their father. Israel did not listen to their father. And Israel did not seek out the protection of their father. They were a rebellious child. And so Israel never truly experienced what it was to have God as Father. But then in the Old Testament, and stick with this, okay? I hope it all makes sense. Stick with this. In the Old Testament, this idea of the son, the child, takes a a narrowing in turn. It, It zooms in on one person within Israel. It zooms in on the king. And in Psalm 2, God speaks about the king, his anointed one, and he says, he declares over him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And so this idea of Israel is zoomed in on the king, and the king is the one whom God loves and protects and instructs, and the king is the one who can truly call God father. You see how this theme is all there in the Old Testament, but still it's not complete. None of the kings really experience God as father. And this theme is kind of left hanging and saying, "Oh, well, how can you have God as father? And then in the streets of Bethlehem, a tiny little baby is born. And he's placed in a manger. And then his life is in danger, and they take the baby and they run to Egypt. And in Matthew chapter two, just come back a couple of pages. He so said, "Why is that weird story about baby Jesus having to run off to Egypt?" where he didn't? I mean someone took him. Well, Matthew knows why it's important. Have a look at Matthew 2 verse 14. So he got up, this is Joseph, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. I thought that was about Israel. I thought that word from Hosea was about the nation of Israel being rescued out of Egypt. Well, no, you see, because what Matthew knows and what Matthew is showing us through his gospel is that Jesus has come to fulfill that theme. What Israel failed to be now, here is the one who will truly be the Israel who is the true Son of God. The Israel who loves the Father, who listens to the Father, who obeys and seeks the Father. Here's the true Israel. Do you see how that theme is being fulfilled now in this one man, Jesus? Come on one chapter in Matthew's Gospel to Matthew chapter 3, and look at Matthew chapter 3 and verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. And now you can hear all the language of Psalm 2, the joy of the father looking at the son and smiling and saying, yes, it's my son. And the nation of Israel and the king, this theme of son, suddenly finds its absolute climax in Jesus. It all crescendos to Jesus and we say, this is the son. Here's the son whom the God, the father perfectly loves. Here's this beautiful relationship. It is so wonderful. And then Jesus looks his disciples in the eye and he says, now I want you to call God Father. I came so that you could call God Father. So that you could enjoy the relationship that Jesus enjoys with his Father, so that you could be brought into it. I mean, that's good, right? What Israel could never do, Jesus makes possible. And that means that to call God Father is the deepest, most profound experience that any human being could ever have. It is the ultimate revelation of God. It is God as he is most able to be known. To call God Father is to know God as he has most fully revealed himself. It's the climax, it's the high point when Jesus says, call him Father. That's it. Let me just read you something from Jim Packer. You may not know who he is, you may not care who he is, but I just want to prove to you that it's not just me who's saying this. Sometimes it's helpful to know that the bloke at the front isn't just making stuff up. Listen to what Jim Packer says very similarly. Everything that Christ taught everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. To know God as Father is the great revelation. Yes, God was known as Elohim, that is the mighty maker of everything. He was known as El Shaddai, the all-powerful one. He was known as Yahweh, the covenant God. But he was never known as Father until Jesus came and made him known. And just a few chapters later on, if you turn over to Matthew 11, this is the last place we're going to turn before we land all this. Matthew 11, verse 27 I want you to look at this very carefully. Jesus says, All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son. All right, stop. If that was the end of the sentence, it would make perfect sense. Here is this wonderful relationship between Jesus and his Father. No one knows the Father except the Son. No one knows the Son except the Father. But then Jesus says the word and. What an extraordinary word for Jesus to say next. Who on earth else is able to know the Father and be part of that relationship? Well, Jesus says no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. it is possible for you to know the Father in the same way that Jesus knows his Father. For you to know God, not just as the mighty maker, not just as the king, not just as the judge, but as your Father. As the one who loves you and looks on you with compassion. As the one who instructs you. As the one who protects you why jesus came jesus came so that you could call god father and even as jesus teaches his disciples to pray our father in heaven he knows in order for them to do that he will have to die in order for us to call god father jesus has to die you see, Jesus is the pleasing Son. He's perfect in every way. This is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. But then God looks at me and He says, Well you just think You're filthy. All your selfishness and pride and greed is just horrible. Jesus, you're beautiful. And so Jesus goes to a cross, and at the cross, what Jesus does is takes all of my filth, all of my filth, all of my sin, He takes all of it on himself, and He gives me His perfect record, so that now God looks at me and says, "You're my son, because Jesus has done that. That's how Jesus reveals the Father to you. He dies. He dies, and then He says to you, "Come, know my Father." Come enjoy my Father. Come pray to my Father. Our Father in heaven. You know, sometimes it's easy to wish, isn't it, that we lived in the Old Testament times. Sounds so much more exciting, doesn't it, sometimes? I mean, lots of it was bad, I know, but, the, you know, the kind of big exciting moments when he could walk through the Red Sea or Goliath goes, or, you know, all those kind of stuff that happened, amazing stuff. Let me tell you this, all of the guys who lived before Jesus were longing for what we know, because they never got to call him Father. And this week, that is our privilege, he's our Father. And he's in heaven, he's all powerful, and yet he's our Father. So let's think about these three things. That should help us to delight in him, to delight in his love for us, to delight in his kindness to us. When you read about God, do you know that he's your Father? I'm not asking, do you know about him? I'm not asking, can you answer questions on his characteristics? I'm not asking, do you know your Bible? I'm saying, do you, when you think of God, do you instinctively think of Father? And I gather for some of us that's hard because of our experience of human fathers. But you have to see that God is the one who defines what a father is. He's the one who shows us. And we screw it up all the time. He's the one who shows us. And it may be that for some of us here, we say, I don't delight in God being my father. I know I'm supposed to, and now I feel more guilty because I don't feel delightful about God. I've just added to my guilt because I, now I feel rubbish that he's my father and i don't even not excited about it. Okay, let me suggest what you should do. You'll have heard me say stuff like this loads of times if you're at Globe because you've got to get this, right? This is what you do if you don't delight in God. You say to God, Father, I'm not excited about you. I'm not excited that you're my Father, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry because you're it shows there must be something really wrong in my heart. That I can't see you. I'm so sorry. Father, please help me to delight in you. I think most Christians go through life going, well, I don't feel very excited about God. But they're never asking him. We're never pleading with him. We're never saying to him, God, please, let let me see you. Moses went up on a mountain, and he said, show me your glory. Oh, if we would only learn to pray. Father, show me. Show me how delightful you are. Show me how beautiful you are. Ask him. Delight in this God. And then honor him. We need to learn to respect him. Not to treat him as some small little thing. Often you hear people saying, you know, when Jesus talked about our father in heaven and Jesus used this term Abba Father. It really means daddy. Now I understand why people say that. I really do because it is an intimate term and and Father sounds a little bit Father. You know, it sounds a little bit too distant. But we do have to be careful that we don't kind of belittle God or treat him like some small little thing. He is the holy creator of the universe. There is an honor and a respect and a worth that is due to him. I think that's true in our public gatherings there should be a joyful seriousness. Not a frivolous kind of, hey God, how's it going? That's not how we treat him. He's our father, but he's awesome and therefore we respect and we give him honor, the honor that's due to him. And then we approach him with boldness. We come because he invites us to come. When I was a kid, we had a... This guy used to come visit our house from Jordan. And he was very rich. And I didn't know many rich people, so he impressed me. And one time he came to visit. He said, next time I come, I will bring you something. What would you like? And me and my brother were in the room. I was about 11, he was about 9. And I was quite well brought up, really. And uh, so I said to him... Um, could you get me some sweets? Who one idiot? I said, Can you, "Could you get me some sweets?" And he said yes, and I, I felt good about myself. I thought that's good. My little brother had a different approach. He said, "I'd like a remote-controlled car." <laughs> and I remember at the time thinking, it, my, my my first thought was kind of disgust. That's that's terrible. Why would you do that? Kind of smug, kind of older brother. Which then turned to a kind of rising panic that went, huh, what if... Okay, anyway, he went. (laughs) Next time he came back, you'll guess what happened. Here are your sweets. And here is the biggest, coolest, most awesome road control (laughs) car you've ever seen in your life. I learnt an important lesson that day. The way that we treat God... It's nothing like that. (laughs) But it does teach us something, actually. What you think of the person that you're talking to will impact the, the way that you speak to them. And in my experience, children tend to come pretty boldly with pretty big requests and pretty unashamedly. And my guess is that most of us probably veer more towards the can I have a bag of sweets than the Oh, Father, I want more of you. I want to know you. I want you to be honored. I want to see you glorified. It's not a remote-controlled car. Don't ask for that. <laughs> well, then. But you understand that we approach God with boldness. Hebrews says, let us then approach the throne of God with boldness. We walk into the presence of the throne room of God and we say, Father, That's what we do as we pray. So this week, as we pray, as you set aside time to pray, make the most of calling him Father. That's the way we address him. And as you take that name on your lips, take time to delight in him. Take time to honor him. And come with boldness. Come as a child.